Hello and welcome. You are listening to Geek Sweat, where we are doing news, reviews and interviews. Today's episode is coming live and direct from Dynamis House in the heart of Clerkenwell, central London. Thank you for listening and here we go. So today, as always, our comptroller is the incomparable Malachi Howe. Good day. And our host, Mr. Trevor Jones. Howdy. And our co-presenters, Akash Bolf. Hi, guys. And myself, Dominic Stinton. Hey. I just made a gesture which you can't see because this is a podcast. <laughs> It'll be for the little microorganisms there in the speakers. They can see you. They'll appreciate that. Yeah. So, today we've got a very special episode. It's our first ever episode on the road, and we're actually in the offices of our very special guest, Marcus Marku. Hello. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, okay, here we go. Insert sound effect. <laughs> Hours of practice. <laughs> So, Marcus, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, first of all, I guess straight off the bat, um, we should talk about um, what it is that you do. Because I've often seen filmmakers described as a triple threat, you know, actor, writer, producer. But in fact, you're more than that. You're also a distributor. Um, you're also... Of film. Of film, we should say. Um, yeah, I think, look, I think all creative people in the in the modern world have to wear many different hats and I think wherever I've faced any kind of resistance I've found a way of overcoming it by doing what somebody else should be doing but doing it myself so I only ever really wanted to be a writer when I started out and um, I was happy for other people to produce and direct my work and I wrote plays for the stage but then quickly realized that if I wanted to get the work on in the way that I wanted to get it on, I'd have to also become a director. And that's when I started making movies that sort of writer-director role fitted really well for me. But also, in terms of the distribution, which, which uh, Trevor mentioned just now, um, yeah, self-distribution, I only became a distributor of my own movie, my debut movie, because of the barriers that I faced when it came to distributing an independent film. So I think all the various hats that I've worn have been as a result of improvising a way forward as a creative person in the modern world, which is, I think, what all creative people need to embrace today and it's the time is now to do it because because of the access to technology and because of the access to audience as well the combination of being able to have accessible technology and also being able to find your own audience means it doesn't matter whether you're a graphic artist an actor a singer a writer a filmmaker a musician it's it's an incredibly great time to be creative because through technology, social media, um, and you're able to find and build your own audience and reach it direct. 
So, I guess that's what you mean by this quote that you said, that making a film is only half of the job nowadays. Yeah, I, I think it, it, you know, yes, I think if you're going to become a filmmaker, you have to wear multiple hats. And, and part of that is, is being, is under, it's like, there used to be, uh, the model used to be that you were just the director mm. and uh, there was somebody else that was responsible for getting your film to an audience. So what I did with my debut feature was realize that I could find my own audience directly. I want to ask a question because you mentioned self-distribution and all of these different roles that you've adopted. And is there like a, and you said the barriers that you faced, is there like a, a fine line between self-distribution and self-destruction? Because it seems like you're having to pull yourself in different directions. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, I think this is, by the, you know, there's lots of kind of sort of research that says by the time you're 35, mm. that's 90% of your character is in place. Mm. And I, I believe that we should all be constantly challenging who we are. Mm. And it's too easy to suddenly say, oh, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a writer or mm. I'm a director. Mm. It's like, you know, that you should be constantly challenging the mm. artist within you mm. it's not enough you've got to mm. push yourself i i didn't a year, this time last year maybe you should explain this to some of the viewers but mm. uh, but i i've just come off the back of a successful crowdfunding campaign i'm now a producer mm. of a hollywood movie starring mm. angelica houston rebecca hall and garrett headland now a year ago if you'd said mm. to me you're going to be producing a Hollywood movie mm. alongside Cassian Alwis, who's a godfather of indie movie. Mm. I just said, how? Mm. And I think it's because I've, I've always tried to be open mm. to change. So mm. I, when I left university, I studied history and politics at university. You know, uh, I then did an MA in legal and political theory. I was gonna become a barrister. That's what I thought mm. I was gonna do. And then I got really frustrated and went into publishing. So in my early 20s, I became a magazine journalist. Wow. And then at 27, I went to Lambda. Suddenly went, I want to be an actor, which is what mm. my, always my first love was acting. So was that Landis? Lambda, the Lambda. London Academy okay. of Music and Dramatic cool. Art, which is a really good drama school. And I went there at 27. And most of my contemporaries were like 23, 22. Mm. They just left university. So I challenged myself again to like do something different and, mm. and reinvented myself as an actor. But... I then, within a year of leaving Lambda, I set up an internet business. It was a part of the first dot-com boom. I should point mm. out to your listeners, we're sitting in a ski lodge yeah. in, 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 in Clerkenwell. This ski lodge wasn't built from, uh, from the movie business, but from the internet business. Okay. So, but then when I, start, when I started working, building an internet business in like 1999-2000, I suddenly felt frustrated that I wasn't being creative enough. So I went and joined an improv theatre company. For 10 years, I did improvised theatre whilst growing an internet business. Then I started writing plays. And then I wasn't content enough with writing plays, so I went to film school. And I went to Met Film School at like 38, 39. And all my contemporaries at Met Film School were like in their 20s. I was the old guy. But I, but I embraced it. I know, like, I know this feeling. But I, but I embraced it. <laughs> with the, the zest and youth of my pre-35-year-old self, right? Because once you get to 35, your personality is mostly set. 
Malachi, you're okay. <laughs> okay, so so I'm constantly thinking, how can I un, how can I reinvent myself as a as a person, as an artist, and I, and as a result of going to Met Film School, I suddenly found myself making movies, and then I made my debut feature, Papadopoulos and Sons, with Stephen Delane and Ed Stoppard, Selena Cadell, Georgia Groom, some really lovely actors, made it low budget, and I thought someone else would come along and distribute it, because that's what you do, you make an indie film, and then I thought, actually, no, I've got to go out and reinvent myself again and become a distributor of my movie. At what point did you realise you've got to rebirth yourself and say, I'm not the producer? When it gets uncomfortable, you've got to reinvent yourself. The moment it starts feeling uncomfortable, like your career isn't going the way you want or your life isn't going the way you want or the things that you want aren't happening, right? Mm. That happens to everyone. It happens to mm. Oscar winners. It happens to top film producers and, and, and actors and musicians. What it's like, this is the, the point is feelings of joy and despair are across the board, regardless of your financial status or your artistic success. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The moment you start feeling uncomfortable, the moment you start feeling despair, the moment you get a nagging voice that says it's not happening in the way that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the point you need to change as a person. And you say, right, I need to do something else. I'm going to start a podcast or mm-hmm. I'm going to write a book or I'm going to go join a writer's group or I'm going to go to art classes. Or I'm going to mm-hmm. do a photography or I'm going to check, chuck in my girlfriend or boyfriend. or I'm going to move house. or I'm going to move cities. I'm going to go. I mean, look. I mean, look at Idris Elba. He's like wasn't getting the work, was he? Here yeah. in London, he goes to America. He reinvents himself. He ends up in the wire. Now he's a top Hollywood film actor. I think he actually even came back for a little bit and got the Luther job there off the go. back of wire. The yeah, wire, of course. But the point is, if you look at every successful artist, every successful, I wouldn't even say artist, every successful human being mm. is a work in progress. Mm. Right? We never should be set. Yeah. As human beings, should we? We should always be breaking the mold of who we are. And I say this with dread because I'm thinking, what does that mean for me yeah. next year? Because the things that you want yeah. might not be the necessarily the things that you need to be doing. It's like, all I, when I went to Lambda, all I want to do is be an actor. So you, within a year, you started a company. So what happened after you left? Uh, well, after I left Lambda? Yes. Well, I, I started getting some jobs as an actor and they were really, so this was what, I left Lambda in 1999, so nearly 20 years ago. And the only parts I could get were kind of uh, uh, Greek kebab men or Turkish drug dealers. That was literally the only parts I could get on spin-offs of the bill. And uh, so I started writing, because I was so frustrated. It's like, so I started writing, because I thought I could write my own part. It's like classic kind of actor response to not getting the parts. And I suddenly started falling in love with writing. And a friend of mine, who was at Lambda at the same time, uh, kind of grabbed me and said, let's write something. So we started co-writing. And I started to discover that the the writing is a journey. Like learning to write is a huge Mm -hmm. journey. You've got to find your voice. You've got to understand structure. You've got to understand craft. You've got to um, understand uh, how to find those accidents, those original moments, and those surprises in your own text, all, all that kind of stuff. But that's a huge journey that you go on. And, you, and, it, and it's an amazing journey to go on because I'm only starting now to feel that I'm starting to get a, a better grasp of the craft of writing. 
So, um, so I, you know, I did that. I started writing, I put, and then I thought I'll write a play, and started writing plays. And I had plays, and I thought that's it. I'm a playwright. That's it. But I mean, I've arrived. I'm a playwright, and it wasn't enough because I was still left frustrated because I wasn't um, feeling fulfilled as a playwright. So then I went to film school. So what was the lack of... I mean, I think we should say at this point, you got pretty far with the playwriting. You had a play on at the Trafalgar Studios, which is a major theatre well, in the centre of London. Yeah, I just... I, 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 well, interestingly, uh, audiences liked it. Critics weren't so hot on my plays. And, but, but this is a true story. After that play at the Trafalgar Studios, critics destroyed it. And I was in Cyprus with my family. It was exactly 10 years ago. No, 2009, so like nearly 10 years ago. And I was, a li I was so depressed. And I, g I got a call from my agent who never got me any acting work. She just became a friend of my agent. She used to get me one annual job. We used to call it my annual job every year. She used to Sounds a bit like a toast of London a little it was, bit. <laughs> I think well, everyone's a little bit toast. And, uh, and she rang me and said, Charlie, true story, Charlie Brooker, saw your play i'd left then it was like the last few days of the of the play mm. and i thought oh, i can't do it. i'm going to cyprus went with my family and it was which era charlie brooker was this was this charlie brooker screen wipe or charlie brooker this doing was, black this, mirror this was pre-black mirror okay and and he said and she said he really wants to meet you because he really liked your play okay. and i just thought well every theater critic had just destroyed my play yeah. but the one person that hates everything charlie brooker yeah. liked it he was a friend of one of the guys in the cast a guy called yeah. james lance so i think he'd come to see james in it and really liked the play and and his producer i think it was called annabelle said can we meet for lunch to discuss ideas for tv wow one of one of which one of the ideas we discussed was what if an artificially intelligent um uh program software yeah. became prime minister yeah which is an episode of black mirror which is an episode really? of black mirror yeah does he so owe you some royalties one, um he uh he doesn't owe me anything do you know, i do you know what it was like such an honor and a privilege to be called in and i gave i gave them a treatment for that whole wow. story of how an artificially the artificial piece of software could end up becoming uh um, Prime Minister, and because then, at this time, and, then and suing, you know, getting Tony Blair into jail. That was the kind of premise of, of, of that whole thing, and just going slightly out of control. But okay. you know, the the, the fact that I, the fact that I had a burger with Charlie Brooker yeah. was amazing for me as a as a, a writer. Why? Because all the theatre critics had destroyed it. But the one person whose opinion counts mm. liked it and invited me for a burger. But so a, Charlie, if you're listening to this. Thank you. Uh, sorry, I was gonna. <laughs> sorry to interrupt, but I, I was gonna say at the time Charlie Brooker was also a. Um, he was kind of a heavyweight journalist at the time because yeah. he was constantly writing for the Guardian yeah, national was, newspaper. Yeah, so I mean, he's also he'd you know he'd he'd also done a TV show called Nathan Barley, which was like cult yeah. and very funny, and you know, so he had he definitely was a. Uh, like a, a cultural he's a cultural heavyweight mm. but without a shadow of a doubt but but you know but i was you know i it was for me it was the beginning of because he said and other people said you're obviously your writing it suits more 
film and TV mm. rather than stage because I wrote lots of short mm. scenes on stage yeah. which now weirdly is very fashionable mm. it's kind of gone full yeah. circle like lots of short scenes and people saying oh no that's not theatre you know you're you're writing tv for the stage yeah on film so that's what made me go to films explore Mm. film school Mm. so i went to met film school did six month part-time course Mm. and i suddenly realized that the language of film was something natural to me Mm. um because when i was when i was um a, a kid in the 70s in birmingham where i grew up i was born and grew up my family were the first family in Birmingham to get a VHS video recorder in 1979. A wow. massive mm. Panasonic yeah. VHS. Top like, loader. It was top, but so heavy, you needed two people to lift it. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and we got it in, in 1979, I remember it. It was like a magic box, okay, because mm. it could record the TV. I mean, mm. in that now, for kids, that's like whatever. But back then, it was mm. a mind-blowing idea and the empty mm. cassettes yeah. were really expensive I remember mm. like they were so they were like gold yeah. okay <laughs> and my mum we had like so we bought the video and the first few films I was like I was eight mm. in 1979 and the first few films that my mother recorded because she was a bit of a film buff were Some Like It Hot um, they were Good Bad and the Ugly there was a film called Captain Blood with Errol Flynn uh, there was The Yellow Submarine uh, which was a Beatles, Beatles film, yeah. film. Uh, there was uh, a film uh, called What's Up Doc with uh, Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill so I these were the films that my mum recorded I a pretty amazing selection it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's very broad yeah. yeah but I didn't I didn't know that Some Like It Hot as an eight year old was mm. a classic yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just a film that was yeah. hilarious. I didn't know who Jack Lemon was. You know. Also Captain Blood, like that's a bit of a swashbuckling. Oh, I adventure. love Captain Blood yeah. and I learned I learned the screenplay to Captain mm. Blood off by heart. Yeah. And same with Some Like It Hot and same mm. with Good Bad and the Ugly. So I knew I knew the screenplays to those films. So he's attracted to the dialogue. Well but, no, what happened was in the seventies, if you got up on Saturday Saturday morning the kids get up crazy times, six yeah. six thirty. Right? Yeah. So I was getting up with my younger brother at six thirty. He was mm. like three or four. Mm. My my dad would be off to the office. My mum would still be in bed. Mm. We'd make for that age. You're making your own breakfast, right? Mm. But in 1979, 1980, there was nothing on TV. Yeah, there was Open University. Used to have wow. the fir- like seven o'clock in the morning first time till so. about nine o'clock before Tiz the cartoons, yeah. and then Tiz was. Or then there would be uh, swap shot. We still had the title cards yeah. on BBC. Well, you, yeah, yeah, you yeah. had CFAX and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But even before that, mm. you had Open University. So yeah. literally, yeah. prime time children's TV yeah. in 1979 was mm. like a, some professor non-existent delivering a chemistry lecture yeah. on TV. <laughs> so like basically, if yeah. you're parents hadn't got a VHS, you would have ended up as some kind of mathematician or geologist or something. It's true, it's yeah. true. But because we, were, because we had the video, yeah. my brother and I would just put in the good, bad and the ugly. There's nothing else to put on, or we'd put on something like that. Oh. Mm. But mainly good, bad and the ugly in, in, like, in that time, because it was like guns and it was shooting and it was like mm. bad guys and good yeah, that, guys. That, that's and, for the boys. Yeah, <laughs> and and I learned. I didn't know that was a cinema classic. I didn't. I didn't. I just. Did you know it was pirating? Well, ah. 
was, was recording off the telly pirating. Well, that would be, wouldn't it? But no, and because we were only playing it yeah, at home. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, so we were recording off the telly and playing it back to ourselves. But were you having to? Were you we taping it with the commercials? <laughs> yeah, but were you were you taping it with the commercials in between and stuff? Like well, that? yeah, sometimes you, they would be with the commercials in between. So and did you get into that habit of like fast forwarding yeah, for the commercials? Yeah, of course. And and but also don't forget we yeah. love the commercials. Yeah. So I'm obsessed with 1970s commercials. I think the commercials were smarter well, no, back you in had the people 70s. Like Alan Parker was directing them. Ridley Scott was directing them. A lot of the 70s commercials were big. Yeah. The bit best thing on TV. You had 70s. Leonard Rossiter in a few. Oh yeah. Well, I mean yeah. The, the, those martini ads were huge, and they were. But you know they and were. And cigarette ads were still on the TV. I think. Yeah. There was yeah. the ads were was you could you could do a whole podcast on mm. on great commercials easily mm. of the past that's yeah. a good idea you heard it here first and i want to be in on that because i want to then be able to if you can get the sound background to some of these because i yeah it's like i, I upstairs in the office i regularly stop mm. and will play yeah. classic commercials and they think i'm really yeah. weird we should do that. Can we do that? I think we can do that. No yeah. problem. But there's some another idea my, taken my, from Marcus. My Markham. first girlfriend, who's yeah. now my wife, yeah. I've kind of desperately wanted to go out with her because she worked at Saatchi and Saatchi. So when I moved to London in 1993, my wife Victoria, who was then my girl, who was then my a, a, you know a prospective girlfriend, worked at Saatchi and Saatchi, and I was like, oh my god, this is like, it's the, like the pinnacle. It's the pinnacle of my advertising obsession <laughs> and she would like when she would like she was like very cool and like would make me wait in the reception yeah. for like two hours or three hours on a wow. friday night because she was like and she's kind of stroppily come down and go but i'm really sorry i'm late you know but this is my career comes first or something really embarrassing yeah, like yeah, that yeah. and i'd be like no that's fine that's really cool mm. i could have sat in the in the lobby of sanchi mm. For like just five hours because yeah. I just wanted to watch creative people come and go. Wow. I was like looking at all the posters on the wall. I didn't mm. mind at all. So yeah, I love I love advertisements as well. So you was immersing yourself in that world. Yeah, because crazy. because because I was I think I was like a lot of the kids today like mm. visually obsessed mm. like with stuff. So I remember when computer graphics first started coming into TV and commercials mm. in like the early eighties. Like my brother and I would be obsessed. Like, mm. Oh my god, that's computer graphics. Yeah. We'd actually say that's computer graphics because no one said CGI back in the day. <laughs> yeah. It was computer graphics. <laughs> it's like and that and they and we'd be really obsessed. And there was a film called Tron, which was like oh, 1981 yeah. or 82. Yeah. And uh, I had we had the pirate version of Tron. My mum. There would, you go. We would have a lot. <laughs> we, we, my a lot. My mum started getting all the. We, there was this yeah. Greek. There was this Greek guy in Birmingham called Lambie, which yeah. is Greek for Charles. And Lambie would like literally go from Greek family to Greek family in the early 80s, yeah. selling pirated uh, videos of like classic movies. I, I want to ask about this pirate videos because the thing is, I think pirate videos have changed now. And I just, I just need to know, is this like guy of a shopping bag uh, yeah, walking shopping around? Bag. Or has he actually gone to the care and trouble of making like a dodgy no, photocopy no, no. front no, cover? There's no dodgy photocopy front cover it's just like black a, felt tip pen yeah, that's it et vhs yeah. tape yeah. <laughs> so uh, my, my only experience of et was like yeah. this pirated version with really bad sound mm. and some guy's head yeah. in like in the cinema because they would just record the straight from the camera straight from the camera and of course you know but then we joined video clubs in the early 80s and yeah. and, and i was obsessed with the video clubs and just for our listeners what is a vi would a video club look like back then? it would be just a, like a, like a shop the size of a news agent mm. uh that would have um 
on the, all the walls. <laughs> I can't believe I'm destroying. I'm not that old, am I? And 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 but would ha- you'd have all Every the videos, cassette tapes, just videos yeah. that you would then take to the counter, mm-hmm. and the guy would put the video in, and then you'd take it. And you give him like one pound fifty or something. Yeah, like whatever it is. And and the first films I used to take out were things like History of the World, Mel Brooks, all the Monty Python films. Because when you're mm. like 11, 12, yeah, that is just insane comedy. Mm. Yeah, you know, History of the World was just on another level of madness, and same with things like um, all the Monty Python. So Life of Brian, I didn't yeah. know when I was twelve that Life of Brian was the funniest film ever made. But you know, I just about thought, Jesus. Yeah, I just thought yeah. it was hilarious, and mm. I just so I'd have certain videos that I'd take back mm. and then take out again and take mm. back and take out. So to go back to your original question, by the time I got to film school, yeah, I'd had a, already had my own mini education in movies from yeah. my own love of movies but I never imagined in a million years I'd make a movie mm. it was something so far removed yeah. I thought the best I'll ever hope for mm. is I'll write a play and I'll see it on stage mm. that is the best I'll ever hope for but mm. to actually make a movie would mm. be like it's like it's wires it's boxes it's lights it's mm. gear and I just f- felt very alienated from the gear yeah. but when I went to film school and if any of your listeners are interested in becoming filmmakers mm. what I learned at film school was there's whole departments of people who are whose responsibility is to worry about those sorts of things so yeah. you can only be concerned with the bigger picture yeah so that was something really refreshing at, f- at film school that's like ah oh my god there's a whole there's a whole team of people who just want to do camera there's a sound recordist who just wants to record sound there's a boom operator I don't, you know I don't need to know the technology that makes the sound work. I don't need or, to know. Or how much prosthetics has to go on to make sure it looks like a, a car wound. I don't wound need to know that. Like that because makeup. there's somebody whose whole life is that. Mm. And that suits me perfectly to the, you know, perfectly fine. Because I don't want to worry about things like that. Mm. And so when I'm working with wardrobe people or makeup people, you know, I'm like, you know, they, I, I give as much responsibility over mm. to the, all the other heads of the department as possible because mm. my job is to tr- concentrate on the whole. Mm. So, oh, sorry, I'm going to let Dom come back to this, but I'm, I want to know, like, when did you first realise you were f- absolutely fascinated by a film? Because I remember video clubs myself, and yeah. I remember... Like blockbusters. Yeah, not even blockbusters. I mean, even, even, like, Hollywood Nights was, like, one that I heard. And these were, like, really... Uh, down-to-earth local franchises and I just remember like being in I think I spent more time in the video shop oh, yeah, looking browsing. at the covers browsing, browsing than actually watching the videos yeah. eventually cool. because like you just imagine all of the films that are there but when did you first realize because it seems like you've been dipping your toe yeah. into the makings of film when did you first realize you were fascinated by it and you had to take I, it on to I'll a, t- I'll tell you, I, a hands-on this, level this is a very interesting exercise that you can all do as creative people which was i i was when i was coming you know when i had this like play at the trafalgar that would been slated by critics although charlie brooker took me for a burger and that was nice um i met this guy called Watt nickel who was like a a, a motivational guru met him by c- complete chance and he's really still alive he's about 85 now he's quite old but what is this kind of like a, a life coach guru that had had a huge effect on different people throughout his life. He was a really interesting guy, and we just hit it off. He'd been a rider, he'd been a motocross rider, he'd um, uh, been he'd been in a, a, a Scot- he's Scottish, he'd been in a folk Scottish group, and in the 60s made 11 albums, 
uh, was very friendly with Billy Connolly back then and they sang together and, and he's this kind of mercurial kind of wizard character and he said to me he said uh, he, I got him here to do a talk to all the staff at the internet business that I run and we just and we became friends and he he said what you know what is it that you want to do and he go, I go well, I don't really know and he said why don't you write write down get a book a journal and write write your life five years from now and that was his advice and it's advice I give to everyone now I meet I said why don't you write where you want to be in five years time because you can't lie to yourself when you're writing a journal like that it's like such an honest thing to do whereas we're constantly when we're talking we're you know half of our background is a lie our past is a lie even to ourselves we're subconsciously making stuff up all the time about who we are but when you're writing there's an act of honesty and when I did that exercise I, I thought when I was writing I want to be a playwright it felt so hollow and false I thought oh god that's not me actually me being a playwright it's not <laughs> me it's not me and so I, when I started writing oh I'd like to be a filmmaker it's suddenly I felt suddenly all the sparks go off I was like oh my god so it's like so actually doing that exercise that what Nichols suggested I do you, was a remarkable thing because I suddenly realized that having that dialogue with myself but I thought aren't I too old you know to be I always thought maybe I'd missed the boat on filmmaking because I always believed to become a filmmaker you had to become a runner leave school at 16 go that route yeah work all the all through the different you know production gears before you had a chance or you start off as a as you know as a clapper loader and you work your way up to DOP and then you have a shot at maybe being a director what I didn't realize actually to be a filmmaker a writer director filmmaker I was probably perfectly placed because I had written plays I had been to drama school I'd run a business and so much of managing a film set is like managing a being like the managing director of a small company because mm -hmm. you've got to be able to manage different groups of people and I suddenly realized that filmmaking was the most natural thing for me to do and producing as well and and then distributing and the whole kind of learning that doing the whole process so it's exciting for me now to be starting a movie business you know with casting Elvis that's really like wow but that feels, again, the, the, the natural thing. So to answer your question on when, when did I make that, that change, it was really because I think what happens in life is you accumulate so many skills and experiences through your life. At some point, they're all going to come together and be useful. Yeah. Does that make sense? Whatever it is, you know, because you just be a sponge and you accumulate stuff. So... That's how people end up going from being bankers to novelists, you know, or they're policemen and suddenly they're writing dramas for TV, police dramas. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, it's like, what, what does your accumulated experience take? Where it, it will always take you to somewhere in, more interesting, I think, if you're open to it. So that was the weird one with me doing that exercise. Yeah. So if any of your listeners are listening that are interested in that, I think the whole, you can Google journaling, you know, um, there's whole videos on how to journal and, and the best way to journal and the practice of journaling is a, is a thing, right? It's a thing. It's like you have a journal, you write your thoughts down, you, th you write 
what you want to do, what's going well for you in life, what isn't going so well for you, what have you learned from that, what are the positives? Mm. Because there are a lot of positives in failure and not, you know, if my play at the Trafalgar had been a huge hit, yeah, and the Royal Court had gone, oh, we're going to commission you to do another play. Yeah. And you know what I mean? I wouldn't be yeah. making movies. You would have gone down a totally different path. Yeah. You may not have had time for the Charlie Brooker and that burger. I wouldn't have had the burger. <laughs> exactly. So, so I'm a big, also, you know, there's a, there's a big thing for a creative people, because I know your, your listeners are creative people. It's like failure is really important. Do you know what I mean? It's a it's a really important thing to to do because like how else do you know what it is that you want to be doing until you feel that until it's not working, you know? I mean, yeah. talking about um, journals and uh, failure, it seems like um, you're patently aware of how to audit yourself. So, do you think we're living in an era where uh, we have creative people, but they're not being very careful about how to audit what their weaknesses skills are and what they need to do next to progress well i i mean i can only speak with about the people i know yeah and the people i know creative people i know people at drama school with other writers that i know um it, uh, it's it's a hard, it's the hardest thing because because what we're all you know the, the problem with being a creative is your constant search for approval you mm. want people to recognize you and like you because otherwise until you've had that recognition you feel crazy because mm. like because you're off in your bedrooms writing away or making paintings or doing music yeah. staring yeah. into the black mirror yeah, yeah. and and, and <laughs> until and there's a part of the, the, it's like once you get some recognition mm. then you can start to relax and go, okay I'm not crazy mm. okay I've done something that's that people have recognized and like mm. yeah I'm not mad but the truth is, you're, we're all mad to be mm. creative. Yeah. It's a madness anyway. But it's an essential madness because how else do we understand the world without creative people? Mm. You know, stories, paintings, music, art. You know, this is this is the way. And films, for me, are the are the, are the peak of of this kind of vehicle of understanding humanity. Mm. It's like without these stories, how do we? understand ourselves and therefore without these crazy people that want to go off and become actors musicians painters artists without these people how do we understand the world we live in we can't you know we're an essential so my advice to all creative people is don't worry you're crazy whether you're successful or not right mm. that's just that's just a given you're crazy because you want in your soul is this burning desire to explain how the world works or why it works Okay, don't worry, don't question that, and then don't worry about the recognition bit. Mm. Just keep going, find your voice, find the work that you are pleased with and proud of, whether it's a short story, whether it's a piece of music, whether it's a podcast. Right, find the stuff that you can sit away and go, I'm really proud, I did that. It's mm. something I'm pleased with, whether it gets three viewers or a million viewers, it does, or a million downloads, it doesn't matter. Because when I was improvising, okay, I was improvising, there were more people on stage than in the audience. You did cool. comedy improv? It was long form improv. Okay. So it wasn't comedy, sometimes it was comedy, comedy but we'd do 40 minutes improvisation. I did it with a company called Flux for 10 years, on and off. 
and sometimes Chris Johnson, who ran the group, was was brilliant, and he uh, he he what what he would do these long form improvs, forty minutes, mm. and sometimes there'd be more of us on stage than in the audience. Wow. But I'd go home to my wife and I'm buzzing, yeah. buzzing, like oh my god, that was mad, that was just insane. Is it more intense with less people? No, it's not, not more intense or less people. <laughs> yeah. but, but I'm just saying it didn't matter that there were only five people in the audience. Oh, okay. Because the artistic achievement was so good yeah. that good because something would come together in those 40 minutes. Mm. And I think, God, we've created something in 40 minutes from nothing mm. that I would take months to write down, mm. you know, or type. Yeah. Um. So it's, it's fantastic you brought up improv because I'm part of an improv group at the moment. Oh, so I, I do all my improv through Hoopla. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. No, I haven't. Um, um, so they're, they're in London Bridge. Right. So they've got their own, um, their own like, stage in London Amazing. Bridge. Amazing. So what, what would your advice be in regards to, because that's why I do improv as well, to um, inform my writing. So right. what would be the most important elements to take so you doing improv well, I think and that influence your writing massively because because with improvisation what you learn is there are no wrong choices okay i'll give you an example and i say this to my wife the other day we we're driving the car on the motorway and i was talking about the impro and she was starting because she never saw any of the impro and i said she goes could i do impro I'm like, yeah everyone can do improvisation so i said um so we started improvisation in the car it was like a couple of weeks ago and uh, and I said um, so I said uh, so I, and I, and the way you the, the, I said the only thing you need to do is just go with it don't re don't reject anything that I'm putting down yes, just run with it yeah. if I give you if I offer you a piece of information you take it and run with it and so what she said so I said um, so, I, so we started the improv and um, I've noticed um, you've overbought for the for the dinner party so if we're driving along on the motorway and she goes um, oh, have I did I, I mean, yes you did. And, and I said, you, you bought, you bought um, uh, 10 chickens, mm. okay? And she went, well, I, I think that the chickens would be a lovely addition to the house because they can also lay eggs. And of course, well, I'm thinking she's bought 10 frozen chickens, <laughs> yeah. right? She interprets 10 real chickens. Yeah, yeah. So I go with the, with, along with the, 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 the improv that we yeah. set up. So I'm thinking, well, I haven't stopped and gone, no, the 10 frozen chickens, She's, she's, she's taken my 10 chickens and, accept, and, and in her head gone, they're live living chickens. So I've gone, okay, yes, accepted. I've said that they can give us eggs, darling. That's a very nice added feature. But I, where are we going to put them in the garden? She goes, well, I thought we could turn the, the kids' trampoline, turn it upside down and build a hen house. Yeah. And I was like, yes, that's very good. I accept that. But mm. where are we going to put the goats yeah. that you've also ordered? <laughs> and she's gone, well, I just think the goats will be fine. You know, so it went into this crazy Place. improvised piece. And she was like really excited because the first time she'd done it. And I said, well, what you all you've. So the key answer to your question is, is the key to it is, I think the key to good improvisation is these little mistakes that happen. <laughs> and instead of trying to correct them and force the story down a, a road that you want to go, you go where the improvised story wants to go, which is often bigger and more interesting than the people doing it. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Just to give you the chickens example. Yeah, you know, it's like I was, in my head, it was like, you've overbought for a dinner party, you've bought 10 frozen chickens. She's taken it to 
chickens for the garden and now we're you know we're going to this crazy place where we're creating this zoo and uh mm -hmm. at the house so so to, to, so i think the key to good impro and how that affects you as a writer is don't discount anything don't mm -hmm. discount where a story could go most stories are dull because people think dull mm -hmm. right what improvisation will do was open you to yeah. all kinds of possibilities don't be shy yeah, yeah. and it's like where are those story possibilities are the they, they are, we, we, so much, when I read a lot of dull scripts that mm. get sent to me, it's because that people are trying to control the story. Yeah. And sometimes the story needs to, to, to go in its own work direction. I've had a recent experience with a meetup group and uh, there was, let's say everybody is working from different fields and there was somebody who submitted a script and okay, admittedly no one's getting paid, but um, they wouldn't change their original script all the way through the production. And it was almost like watching somebody strangle a baby. Where it's, it's like they had this great idea, yeah. or as an interesting premise, but they weren't letting anything add, be Develop. added or changed or developed, even when new people were coming onto the project. Yeah, I mean, that's, I can understand why that can be hard yeah. as well when you've written something and you think it's concrete, it's locked down, and yeah. someone wants to change it. Yeah, I think in the, a better, better, but in the early stages of writing yeah. and development, when yeah. it's kind of at the embryo stage, yeah, then that's the time to play with stuff mm. and ask, like, at the core of. of improvisation which yeah. helps you as a writer what if what yeah. if what if what if what yeah. if so i'll send you the short that i made the two strangers because it was doing what ifs throughout mm. yeah what if what if what if what if yeah. what if and uh um so yeah i think acting improvisation are the same part of the brain that you write with you're yeah. making these kind of creative choices often by impulse yeah and the impulse choice yeah is much more interesting than your constructed this was the choice. problem because i think what it was with the issue of this particular individual whose name might be mentioned but um he was the writer who had let's say his script was going to be greenlit but he knew he was going to direct it so there wasn't that kind of, i don't think there was that sense of what if he was yeah. never asking that question I think when the script gets to that stage it's so much more difficult yeah to change yeah and it's like i think we 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 don't value development mm. and and we the, we don't have enough time on development is that a british thing or is that around the world i don't know i can't speak for anything else but but i think we're getting better at development and like as a writer the first draft you write you think's the best one Mm. Otherwise, how do you finish it? Yeah. So when you finish it, that the end, the end, you put it down, you make a cup of tea, you think I've done it, I've written the perfect screenplay. How else do you get to write a hundred pages if you don't think it's good? But isn't that the delusion that you're you going along with? You're going along with the euphoria of having finished, rather than the euphoria of it being the best it can be. But yeah, but you can't see it being anything other than what it is. Mm. The first draft. Mm. No one writes, no one, mm. unless they're crazy, writes a first draft and goes, yep, when I've got to the end of this first draft, I'm going to start all the way at the beginning. I'm going to rip this character out. I'm going to rip that character out. Mm. I'm going to change the ending here. Mm. I'm going to introduce a new incident here. Mm. No one does that. No one goes. Not even Aaron Sorkin. I don't, no one, no one. So what you do is you write your first draft naively, believing it's the best thing that's ever been written. Yeah. So that's giving you the drive to okay. finish. Okay, that gives you the drive to finish. Then 
you send it to your some of your friends whose yeah. opinion you trust and a few script editors they come back and some of and they, and sometimes it's the most depressing experience. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they ask you questions. You don't know how, how they get it. Or what? Where? didn't write this office. Well, how can this come? Well, exactly. They do. They ask those questions that leave you dumbfounded. Mm. And then and then painfully, you've got to take some time out and go back and start again. And mm. you know, even more painful with the current screenplay that I've written. It's called mm. Crazy Blue. It's mm. on its like ninth draft, but now it's good. Now it's really, really good. But, but it's unrecognizable from the first draft. And that's two, three years. A like, close friend of mine, she's a filmmaker from Switzerland, mm. who said, this has got to go, that's got to go, this whole character's got to go. Mm. And I remember on South Bank with her, almost yeah. like screaming at her, you yeah. know, like, how can you say that? This is, but she was, but now with like two years on, she was right. Can All I, those things went. Well, we we mentioned earlier about this kind of rebirthing for you to do, uh, or, or or rechanging your identity, as it were. Does the writer have to um, change their identity um, from draft to draft to kind of get to the stage of that's what I did to get to the first draft. I need to be a slightly different person now to make a quality second draft or a quality third draft. I think it's. N do you know what it is? I don't think it's that so much as when you're writing, is understanding what is the heart of your story. Okay. Like what is the controlling idea of your story? What is the big, like, sp spiritual heart center of your story? So it's not about letting go, it's about holding on to that? It's, no, it's finding that. Finding I don't think you get that in the first draft. Mm. I think you're scrabbling around the edges and then the mm. second and third and fourth, and sometimes the story doesn't reveal itself to you. Mm until the third or fourth draft like mm. okay that's what i've written mm. right because because i thought i was writing this and yeah. really i'm writing that yeah. that's because the subconscious yeah it's got its own agenda yeah and your conscious conscience can't see it can't see it mm. and so what you're talking about it's not so much about changing your personality yeah i think what it is is about getting closer to the truth of what you're trying to write so it's more like taking a, a block of marble and sculpting it and chipping away yeah. a bit at a time and, and revealing revealing an inner truth that's connected to you but it's probably bigger than your conscious self Mm. Your subconscious, where your a lot of your creativity resides, mm. all of your creativity resides, mm. is much bigger, more interesting, more dynamic, more surprising, mm. more alive than your conscious self, mm. which is cluttered with memories, emotional hang-ups, uh, ego. Mm. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's like all good creatives, whether you're an actor, a mm. writer, or a musician, is about getting beyond mm. the learned, egotistical patterns of mm. your conscious self mm. to something more interesting. I mean, look at the greatest artists, mm. the greatest performers. They're doing that. They're mm. doing that. Sometimes they go mad because they don't know how they're doing it. And they're trying mm. to analyze, how am I doing this? So they're trying to create a formula. So Laurence Olivier famously would come off stage and be really angry, and they say to Laurence Olivier, oh, "What are you on about? That, that was um, that was the best performance of Hamlet I've ever seen." And Laurence Olivier would say, "I know, but I don't know how I did it." You know, <laughs> and so and so you know, and, and that's why we love 
David Bowie or Prince mm. or all these yeah. great artists because they're doing something interesting then mm. probably what they're really doing is channeling a, a much more interesting subconscious yeah than mm. than the conscious self the conscious self is a wooden actor yeah. it's a plodding actor it's a wooden writer it's a plodding writer mm. you do need conscious crafting skills to edit and to craft a piece of work. formatting etc mm. do you know what i mean you yeah. need that but you need some of that sort of slightly bonkers something else that you get from as an artist from mm. tapping to your subconscious something else ephoral so can we move on to your film papadopoulos and sons what was the unconscious <laughs> story that you wanted to tell that, was, that was very conscious uh i i I mean, Papadopoulos and Sons is a really conventional, formulaic uh, story of of um, of riches, of rags, of riches to rags, and so for my first film, I really wanted to be as formulaic as possible because that gets what would give me the best chance of. I don't, I don't believe any good filmmaker is gonna be challenging rules and conventions on their first film and the problem with film school i believe is that it's it's trying to it's trying to it's asking filmmakers to be breaking the mold on their first and second movie and i think what you're trying to do with your first second third anything is learn the form mm. just learn the form like please <laughs> the audience you know and and i I've, and in papadopoulos and sons i deliberately set out to make a film that would play well on TV. I wanted to make a telly movie that would be like one of those popular movies. And in Greece, it's very popular. They play all the time. So, you know, uh, and it's been on the BBC a couple of times. And it's an in-flight movie as well. In-flight. It was on Netflix for three years and millions of people saw it on Netflix. So it achieved everything that I wanted to do, which was to make a good telly movie. Because I grew up with telly movies. You know, there's a movie that I wanted to make a movie that would play again and again and again. So I didn't need to be cool and trendy and and groundbreaking. It, it would just needed to be a good, good old yarn, you know, with good actors and a nice story and a family story. And I like those films. You know, I love those films, you know, um, and those those films I like. I want to make more of because I like them. I like pop. I want to be I want to make popular movies. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be the art house cool, like movie make. To, that might be different in ten years time. Mm -hmm. You know, in ten years time, I might be saying, you know, I want to make, you know, uh, sort of a, a challenging movie that challenges audiences. I never at this stage in my life, I'm so excited at pleasing audiences. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to upset them or challenge them. And it's like, I I, I just want to be. I want I want to enjoy audiences enjoying my film that's an amazing thing Ooh, you know when absolutely. you see people enjoy your your things that you've written and done um i tried to challenge people with the very first play i wrote and i did i challenged everyone <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't probably wasn't i wasn't ready to do that you know what i mean so so it's a very conventional story papadopoulos and sons it's very kind of riches to rags but then they gain a kind of a bigger understanding of the, the meaning of life which is to experience joy. So, and it did really well. And it was timely because of the financial crisis and everything else. So yeah, it was a good movie. 
So, can I ask you about the marketing? Is it true you actually cold-called Greek Orthodox priests and got them to mention the film to their congregations? So this is a true story. Um, when we were self-distributing, I there's a Greek guy who I work with in the office called Nick. Um, Nick and the Greek. Nick the Greek. And Nick, his Greek is much better than mine. He cold-called... We, we, there were 70 Greek Orthodox churches in Britain. 17 of them wow. are in London alone north like maybe all of london about 17 or so so we cold called every group how of, do you even open that conversation or even just, open that door we just it's just connect we just ring up the get to the priest's office yeah say i want to speak to the priest yeah M my colleague is launching a film called papadopoulos and sons it's, a, <laughs> it's about a greek family who lose everything in a banking crisis in london yeah. and then they, they have to take over a fish and chip shop that they've forgotten they ever owned and they have to start again as a family. It's a really sweet story. It's about family. It's about Greeks. And Could you're not you... getting phones put down on you at No, time. God, no. Wow. Not only did we not get the phones down, they were like, yes, we would happily recommend the film. And, and I had a network of people from Twitter and Facebook wow. who were pushing the film for me. And the guy in Cardiff, who I've never met, I don't even remember who his, what his Twitter handle was, but we talked for a few years on Twitter. He's one of the three or 4,000 people that I follow. And he jumped in on Twitter and said, I'll help gather the screenings for you in, in So it's like a small nation just yeah, pushing this. Yeah, so he gathered, helped me gather the screening for Cineworld in Cardiff. Wow. And he tweeted me on the night, the opening night. He said, yeah. it was, we had a Twitter conversation. He went, congratulations, full house. Amazing. Uh, and he goes, and the Greek priest is here. And I was like, oh my for God, real. that's amazing. He goes, Was he in the full kit? He was in the full kit. Wow. Okay, and he stood up at the opening credits yeah. and blessed the opening oh, credits amazing. of the film with a giant popcorn in his other hand. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. And, 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 you know, and uh, that was a full screening in, in Cardiff. The one in Brighton was full and the people who I follow on Facebook who helped me gather that screening there, who I've never met, yeah. I've never met these people. Occasionally I meet them, like, I'll be like, I was in York taking my son to the Viking Museum and I was like, I tweeted, I'm in York at the Viking Museum. I can't wait to see the Viking Museum with my son. And this guy went, who was one of the helpers, yeah. gather screenings for where it was, uh, like it might have been up north. Or uh, he said, he said, I'm here. Yeah. I guess I'm in, in the museum. No, I'm in York, at, at, at an insurance conference. Do you want to meet for a yeah. coffee? So I met wow. one of my helpers wow. in York. We had a coffee. Yeah. And there's, some of them are on Facebook, some are yeah. on Twitter, but many of them I've never met. And five yeah. years ago, they were helping me self-distribute mm. Papadopoulos and Sons, and mm. all they had was a trailer, the title of the film, and my passion. That and, was it. And a logline. Wow. Brilliant. And a logline, and, and they went, I want to help. Wow. I want to help. Yeah. They were excited to help, and they all loved the film, thankfully. Yeah. That's but nice. you did a lot of stuff to try and make the marketing as targeted as possible because i also saw you did an interview for the birmingham mail at aston villa that's true i'm a villa fan i grew up in birmingham it's been a source of pain for most <laughs> of my life you got promoted this year didn't you no we were relegated two seasons ago but as we're still in we're still in we got promoted we got to the we got to the playoffs, playoffs oh we, and now we're on the verge of financial ruin oh that's i mean literally it's grim i um, blame jack grealish hey i mean he's a wonderful player jack Grealish. we could do a whole podcast on jack grealish um <laughs> maybe do the advert one first <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um but but so yeah so yeah we did a bit of promotion in the birmingham uh mail and the guy there weirdly 
who's uh, the journalist there who championed Papadopoulos' sons, championed me, who was uh, and got reviewed the film, got it in the Bone Post, also writes a column for the Birmingham Post called Cheap as Chips, where he goes around all the fish and chip shops in Birmingham and wow. he grades the chips. He has a scales in the car, weighs them, has like a thermometer to do the temperature. <laughs> for real so it was a weird alignment it was like he's like you're the perfect guy because the film wow. it's like that. it was meant to happen it was meant the to stars yeah, aligned yeah, yeah. the stars aligned on that one definitely so yeah but uh... and I remember obviously because um, we myself and Marcus both live in Wimbledon I remember all the Wimbledon papers were talking about this film being made in Wimbledon with big stars who'd been in Hollywood movies yeah mm. and I mean Stephen Delane is is technically a star but he's also we're talking Game of Thrones yeah Stephen he's such a down-to-earth yeah. he's just as, as normal as you get as a guy mm. you know Stephen and uh, so I, I can't imagine unless Stephen wasn't that down-to-earth mm. he wouldn't have done this movie because the money was not yeah. Right, he did it because he just wanted to do the project. And we, as the uh, last bit of advice to all your podcast listeners, is find your gang. Find, you know, mm. you're a gang here. Find your gang, and they won't want to. It won't be about money. It will be because they just want to do it. Mm. How are we doing? Are we landing the plane? Are we, are we landing the plane now? Do you want to land the plane? Are the lights on the runway. Yes. Yes, I'm sitting here. Okay. <laughs> is that it? Is we coming to the end of this? Okay. Um, How long Marcus, was that? Can you tell us a little bit more, finally, about this exciting new project that you've got going? Do you yeah. know what? It's so new and exciting. I'm just going to finish in one line. It was called Movie Collective. It was an idea. I had lunch with this incredible film producer called Cassian Elwes. Cassian's like a magician of indie film. He's made hundreds of movies. He was head of William Morris in the 90s, and he's made some. William great Morris Gallery. William Morris, the agency, agency in America, sorry, yeah. and he made films like Dallas Buyers Club. He made Mudbound recently, which was sold to Netflix. He made The Butler. Mm. He made um, so Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning yeah, films. Yeah, he made you know when he was leaving William Morris, he made Blue Valentine, and they let him have the credit on that as a producer. You know, he's made some stunning films, Margin Call. You know, lots of lovely, good indie films. I had lunch with him last year. I said, why don't we take a slate of movies onto Crowdcube? He crazily said, yeah, let's do it. He then, I said, then can you put a film in that's ready to go? He said, yeah, there's a film ready to go called Utopia Road with Angelica Houston, Rebecca Hall, Garrett Hedlund. And I went, and he said, let's go do it. So we went and did it, and we raised half a million pounds. Um, and the film is now being shot this summer. So it's, it's, it was kind of one of those brilliant uh, things that came together nicely. And I'm hoping it, it gives my feature that's the second movie on the slate a bit of a lift. So we're casting that at the moment. So what's the type of a film? When is it likely to be distributed? And what would be the hashtag? Um, well, I think Utopia Road is, Utopia Road is the title of the first film. We've got four films currently on the slate. But the first one being made is called Utopia Road. It's going to be made this summer. I can't. I don't know when it will be uh, released. Probably a year from now. I mean, I think they won't get it into Sundance or any or any of those festivals because uh, in the coming sort of festival run because they haven't started making it yet. What would you say the logline is of Utopia Road? Uh, I know the storyline. It's about a disgraced televangelist. 
uh, played by Angelica Houston. It's a great script. Uh, she's this kind of disgraced televangelist that's trying to make a comeback, yeah. and uh, and her and her, she kind of hooks up with Rebecca Hall's character, and um, and 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 her long lost son is tracking her down, played by Garrett Hedlund, and it's a it's a really good. It's funny, it's quirky, but Ross and Crow, the director, she's an artist. Mm. She's an incredible artist. She's like one of LA's top artists. And what she did with her short was bonkers. And this visually is going to be a feast. It's very much uh, in the in the vein of Wes Anderson. And I said to her, oh, you really remind me of a kind of Wes Anderson a conversation that Wes Anderson had with a guy called Gregory Crudson who is I saw this talk a few years ago Gregory Crudson's a photographer and Wes Anderson's famous film director and Wes Anderson was talking about his influence being Gregory Crudson this photographer who takes these huge photos massive it takes six months to plan it takes months to plan these photos and uh, she said oh yeah Gregory Crudson was a tutor at my college so I thought okay that's interesting we're, in, we're potentially in really, potentially in really interesting territory with Ross and Crow, who's an artist. She's in, look, look, who else is going to give an artist a, day, a chance in this modern world uh, 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 making a feature film? <coughs> Cassian's gone out on a limb to, to get her, her debut feature, and we've done it via the crowd, via, via, via 500 people putting in half a million quid. Cool. That's going to get us off the ground. And you said that was Crowdcube. Yeah, it's a, it's it's not like Kickstarter or or Indiegogo because you buy shares in a company. Yeah. So Indiegogo and Kickstarter, you're getting perks. But per crowd, project. Yeah, yeah, but Crowdcube, you can take a like it's like Dragon's Den. You're literally mm. going in front of the crowd. You're going, I want to sell twenty percent of my company for half a million quid mm. to get us going. So that's Crowdcube, and that's what mm. we did it with. Mm. But it was hard work. God, it was hard work. But you know we did it. How long was the process from beginning to end? We, Cassian and I had lunch last October. In December, I met Crowdcube. They were like, "Go for it." In January, I, Cassian was like, given the green light. We set a date for April launch. So February, March, April, I was working on it with my colleague Mirren. April, we went sort of uh, in a sort of private state on Crowdcube. May, public state. Mid June. Done. This is wow. amazing. Six and a half, six. Yeah, it was hard work, really hard work. But that's how to do it. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was easier. <laughs> Can I just say thank you so much for the for having me on your podcast? You're very no. welcome. <laughs> Thanks for being here. So that was the episode of Geek Sweat featuring Marcus Marku. And he's a producer, and feel free to check out his IMDb credits. There will be a lot of interesting film projects and series that he's worked on before. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the impeccable, irrepressible, and irresistible sound stylings of MKH. <laughs> uh, we've also been hearing the delectable, dulcet tones of Dominic Stinton. Goodbye. And we have been listening to the award-winning and amazing audio of Akosh Both. See you guys. And I've been your host, 
the tremendous Trevor Jones. However, if you'd like to know more about Geeksweat and our projects, feel free to follow us online. If you follow the hashtag, either on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, you're looking for hashtag Geeksweat. That's hashtag G-W-E-K-S-W-E-A-T. We look forward to hearing from you again soon. We hope you look forward to hearing from us soon. And we're out for now. Ciao.